you can join the fight to defend employee-funded and association PACs by texting NABPAC to 52886. Message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Facts About PACs podcast. I'm Michaela Isler, NABPAC's Executive Director. Today, we're going to examine the electoral and political landscape with a 35-year veteran of politics at the state and national levels, Jim Ellis from Ellis Insight. Michaela, we are less than two weeks from the election here in 2021, and the road ahead for PAC managers is only going to become more challenging. Redistricting, primaries, midterms, oh my. That's right. And it's really the perfect moment to have one of the very best at identifying and analyzing emerging trends in campaigns and elections with us today on the podcast, Adam. The known knowns and known unknowns of the 22 election coming up in just a minute with the Jim Ellis. But first, NAPACtivities, Michaela. We have a webinar coming up on the 26th and the NAPAC Reconnect Conference up on November 10th. We sure do, Adam. We're, as always, accelerating into the turn, and I'm excited for you, actually, because uh, next up, we'll have you on one of our webinars next week, Beyond the Written Word, and I'm excited for our members to get to hear from you on other ways to utilize technology, whether it's podcasting or more video work. I know this is going to be a fun webinar. How are we communicating? How are we reaching each other? How are we building energy? That's what we're going to talk about. I know we've got some great folks who are going to be on that webinar. Of course, the really big thing for us, Michaela, is the Reconnect Conference in person, finally, November 10th at the National Housing Center. We have an excellent list of attendees. Over 120 folks have already registered. Some fabulous sponsors stepping up to support this event And of course, we're going to have great programming throughout the day, but I'm really excited that we do have, as we've mentioned before, Ari Fleischer on the program as our keynote speaker, and really what a great time for him to come and talk about the environment all of our PAC managers and government affairs offices are operating in and how to manage in a crisis, particularly on a crisis communications perspective. Well, we're just getting started here on episode 59 of the number one PAC podcast in America, Jim Ellis straight ahead. The Facts About PACs podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NAPPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community, Michaela. Thanks, Adam. And what a treat to have the human on the other end of the Twitter handle at Ellis Insight with us today. Jim Ellis, welcome to the Facts About PACs podcast. Well, Michaela, thank you so much. And thank you for that glowing introduction. I hope to uh, live up to your standard that you set here. (laughs) You will. And really, before we get to your general take on the political landscape in 2022, can you just brief everyone on the state of play in the two gubernatorial races happening this year, both in Virginia and New Jersey? We're right in political prime time now for both of them. Let's start quickly with New Jersey. The uh, Governor Phil Murphy running for re-election there, as everybody knows, that's a strong democratic state. But also, as we know, the Northeast is a bit quirky when it comes to governor's races. And states like Vermont, Massachusetts, and Maryland all have Republican governors who have all been re-elected. So it's quite an interesting phenomenon. And New Jersey has had its share of Republican governors since the 90s as well. Now, Jack Cittarelli is the Republican nominee against Governor Murphy. He is a former state assemblyman from Somerset, and I think he's running a a pretty strong campaign message-wise. I like what he's done 
on how he delivers the message and the message that he's going after Murphy on to create that clear contrast. His big problem is New Jersey is such an expensive state since you have to buy television in the New York and Philadelphia markets. It becomes one of the most expensive states in the country to campaign. And I think that's his problem, whether he has the resources to reach the adequate number of people, maybe to go over the top. I think that result is going to be a bit closer than most people would guess. Murphy won with a 56 to 42 margin last time. He probably wins again. And, but I think that margin is going to be significantly closer this time. Things are really happening in this Virginia race right now. And I think it's changed here in the past couple of weeks. And we see some momentum clearly going to Glenn Youngkin, the Republican nominee, against the former governor and Democratic National Committee Chairman Terry McAuliffe. And McAuliffe's made a couple of mistakes. Uh, he made that uh, comment where in the debate where he, he said that he doesn't think parents should have any role in telling schools what to teach. And then Youngkin turned that into his best commercial of the campaign. And frankly, I don't think Youngkin has run that great of a race. I think he's missed a lot of opportunities to create a better contrast. He's got a lot of issues on the table that he hasn't used effectively, in my opinion, from what I've seen. But he still may win. Jim, this week you wrote about what some of the numbers are telling us, not just the top line, but among the people who are gubernatorial voters. Unpack the numbers for PAC managers. What are they telling you? There was a polling firm, Sean Cooperman, that ran a survey of both New Jersey and Virginia at the same time. And in those people that are certain to vote, Youngkin had moved ahead. In the overall, he tends to run about three points behind McAuliffe. In almost every poll, and there have been 20 since August 1st that have been released publicly, and they're almost all showing the same thing. And that is both candidates in the 40s, with McAuliffe holding a slight lead, usually within the margin of error. Underlying, there are some positive signals for the Republicans. One of those positive signals in all of these polls suggests that, A, as in the shown poll that said the certain voters, he's ahead, Youngkin, and Chitterelli was just a couple of points behind in New Jersey. So both of them were doing very well among those people most likely to vote. So it's going to be a turnout battle in, in these races. But the, the second underlying point is enthusiasm. And all of the polling indicate that in Virginia anyway, the enthusiasm by about five to seven points is on the Republican side. So that's a good sign for Youngkin. And the other good sign for him is that the Democratic primary in 2021 actually had 34,000 less voters than came to the polls in 2017. If either Chitterelli in New Jersey or Youngkin win in Virginia, I think it's going to be a major precursor for 2022. And if the 2022 election were coming up on November 2nd, yeah, we probably would see a Republican wave. But as we know, a year in this business, and particularly nowadays, is an awful long time and a lot could change. But if we want to look at the Senate races in the House, I think there are two suppositions going on right now. And those suppositions are that the Democrats are in better position to grab an outright majority in the Senate. As you know, and as everybody knows, the Senate's tied at 50-50. But the Democrats are better set up to gain that extra seat to claim an outright majority than the Republicans. And the second supposition is that the Republicans are in better position to take back the House majority. They're only five seats down. And a lot of people think, well, just because of redistricting, they're going to be able to go over the top. I don't buy into that last part, but I think that 
there could be enough of a trend building that the Republicans are in pretty good shape to take that majority. But let's start with the Senate races. And the reason the Democrats are in better position is because the map is going their way. The Republicans have to protect 20 states and the Democrats only 14. So right away, the Democrats have more targets. But it really, below the surface, it's even more favorable to the Democrats. Because if you look at the open seats, that we have five declared open seats at this point, and all of them come from the Republican side, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Missouri, North Carolina, Alabama. And then where there's two others that the members have said, well, I haven't really made a decision about 2022 yet. And that's Ron Johnson in Wisconsin and John Thune in South Dakota. So you see these battleground open states are all Republican held right now. And you have the Democrats with zero open seats, and it's not likely that they will have an open seat to defend. And, and then when you get into the top Senate targets, and there's a dozen of them, the Republicans only have realistically four targets to go after on the Democratic map. New Hampshire, which I think is the number one target, particularly if Governor Chris Sununu runs against Maggie Hassan. And then you've got Raphael Warnock and Mark Kelly. You'll Everybody will remember those names from 2020. They were two of the stars for the Democrats in the 2020 cycle, but they're up again because both of them won special elections to fill unexpired terms. And so now they have to stand for election for a full six-year term in 2022. And then the fourth seat that's in play is uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. And I think the most vulnerable for the Republicans is that open seat in Pennsylvania. And the most vulnerable for the Democrats is uh, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that we see the 50-50 remaining. I can see a situation where we've got the Democrats converting Pennsylvania and the Republicans converting New Hampshire, and every other state stays the same in terms of the party member that they elect to the Senate. Jim, let's switch gears and let's talk about the sort of abnormally high number of competitive House races and what you're seeing there. I think we could see over 100 seats in play in the House when we redistricting gets done and with the amount of money flowing into the House races. The House actually could be the big battleground this time as opposed to the Senate, even though the Senate's tied. Because we have to remember that there are 53 sitting members who came into the House winning with less than 52% of the vote, 27 Democrats and 26 Republicans. On top of that, we have seven new open seats based upon redistricting that are changing seats and another 18 incumbents who have said they're not running for re-election either because of retirement or running for the Senate. It becomes a very active cycle. Jim, let's focus for a second on these primaries. For folks in the Employee Fund and Business Trade Association PAC space, they're coming at us like a freight train and they're going to be important. And I think the primary schedule is a major factor as well because of redistricting. And because the redistricting cycle is late, we could see some states having to postpone their primaries. We've already seen that in Illinois, where the March primary is now June 28th. North Carolina and Texas are still hanging in there with early March primaries that, depending on litigation on the congressional maps, you know, those could get postponed. So in terms of a dollar giving strategy, you really got to pay attention to this primary schedule because it's fluid this time and could change in many states. Jim, I think that's a really important point because we've been saying this whole year, given you know the unfortunate circumstances after January 6th, that our contribution strategies have been very fluid and likely will continue to be even more so. And now you layer this on top of all of that. Um, 
you know, we could see folks really not getting too far into the game till probably, you know, second quarter, maybe, because trying to, if, if we've got litigation, if the primaries are pushed back, these business packs are going to potentially be sitting on some money going into the second, third quarters. Yes. And I think you have to be prepared for a very fluid cycle. Um, the, the, the redistricting litigation is going to be the wild card, I think, and just how much we see it. I mean, the census has flaws. I mean, the, the redistricting attorneys are telling me, don't, don't be surprised if we have lawsuits in all 50 states. Mm -hmm. And even in the six at-large states, they all have state legislative lines. And there's, uh, you know, there's some flaws in that census that could be uh, litigated. And then, you know, today, every map that a state passes is going to be litigated. I mean, they're already beginning to file charges on the Texas map. Uh, and um, even in the Colorado situation, which automatically goes to the state Supreme Court, and they have until December 15th to ratify this new commission map. But there's already amicus briefs and everything being filed to try to challenge what the, uh, what the Colorado Commission drew. So we're going to see that in every state. And in some states, the plaintiffs will win. And in some places, then the primaries could be moved. That, that, so it affects the whole cycle that way. I think there's a misconception on this cycle on redistricting from a macro standpoint, because the kind of underlying view is that, well, the Republicans are going to come out ahead because they control more states. I mean, in the, when you look at trifectas, which are what party controls the governor, the state Senate, and the state house in all these states, Republicans have 23 of those and Democrats only 15. But when you really get down to it, when you look at the states that have commissions, and another thing that's overlooked is there's so many of these states where the dominant party either already has all the congressional seats or they're at a maximum level. And when you get down to it, the Democrats can really make gains in just three states, New York, Illinois, and New Mexico, and they're trying to go the max way, and maybe some in Oregon as well. That, that map is very iffy for them, although they're trying a max map. And for the Republicans, it's only four. And so out of their 23, they really only have four where they can make significant gains. At the end of the day, some of these analysis that say Republicans are going to come out seven seats ahead just because of redistricting, I don't believe that. Because if you look at all of the states individually, I think it's only going to affect the, the overall map by about two to three seats. And that could be either way. It's possible the Democrats come out a seat or two ahead on redistricting at the end of uh, all of this map drawing process. So I think the electorates in these states and districts will again determine the majority and not redistricting. Jim, we could listen to you all day. This has been really insightful. Definitely not what anyone's hearing out in the social media land. So really appreciate your insights. There's going to be so many moving parts between now and, and next November that we'll need to have you back to keep us updated. Well, great, Michaela and Adam. Thank you so much for having me and I'm available anytime. Always enjoy being part of NAPAC and being associated with the members. Thanks so much, Jim. And thanks everyone to downloading and sharing the Facts About PACs podcast. As ever, employee funded and business trade association PACs are the most transparent and regulated form of political giving. And NAPAC is dedicated to defending that record and championing the amazing PAC professionals who lead vital teams. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week when we're joined by Courtney Shornborn, Corporate Vice President, Office of Governmental Affairs, New York Life Insurance Company. See you next time on the Facts About Packs podcast. <laughs>